spiritual life is a jungle. Anyone who would tell you different is not being upfront with you. The Christian life, contrary to the assumption of many, is not a cakewalk through the park. Truthfully, it's closer to a walk through a minefield than tiptoeing through the tulips. Whether you're a new believer or a veteran saint, you must realize one very important fact about spiritual life, that only the spiritually fit will finish strong. Those who are alert, who sense danger, who know the techniques of self-defense, those who acknowledge the existence of a very real enemy and understand his tactics, only those who are prepared to hold their ground and resist the attacks will come through the battle in the best condition. A man by the name of Jay Rathman is a picture of one who survived. It's a very old story that uh, some of you may have heard before. Actually, I found it in a, in a book years ago by Chuck Swindoll. It's a true story. True story about the man, a man while hunting deer near Red Bluff in Northern California. He climbed to a ledge on the slope of a rocky gorge and he raised his head to look over the, the ledge above and he sensed movement to the right of his face. A coiled rattlesnake struck with lightning speed just missing Rathman's right ear. The four-foot snake's fangs got snagged in the neck of Rathman's wool turtleneck sweater according to the report. And the force of the strike caused it to land on his left shoulder. It then coiled around his neck. He grabbed it behind the head with his left hand and he could feel the warm venom running down the skin of his neck, the rattles making a furious racket. He fell backward and slid headfirst down the steep slope through brush and lava rocks, his rifle and his binoculars bouncing beside him. And as luck would have it, Rathman said in describing the incident to the Department of Fish and Game, I ended up wedged between some rocks with my feet caught uphill from my head so I could barely move. He got his right hand on the rifle and he used it to disengage the fangs from his sweater. But the snake had enough leverage to strike again. Rathman said he made about eight attempts and managed to hit me with his nose just below my eye four times. I kept my face turned so he couldn't get a good angle with his fangs, but it was very, very close. This chap and I were eyeball to eyeball, and I found out very quickly that snakes don't blink. <laughs> he had fangs like darning needles. I had to choke him to death. It was the only way out. And I was afraid that with all the blood rushing to my head that I might pass out. And when he tried to toss the dead snake aside, he couldn't let go. He had to pry his fingers off of its neck. Rathman estimates that his encounter with the snake lasted about 20 minutes. And Warden Dave Smith says of meeting Rathman, he says, quote, he walked toward me holding this string of rattles and said with a sort of grin on his face, I'd like to register a complaint about your wildlife. <laughs> Jay Rathman's struggle resembles the Christian life every single day. And as we get closer to the end 
the struggle intensifies. When we least expect it, when things seem to be going well spiritually, we're pounced upon by an invisible army of spiritual warriors with an incredible strength. And with this strength, these lingering lightning attacks threaten to knock us off balance and paralyze us with the venom of defeat. That is, if we're not prepared or protected. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you prepared for the fight? Are you prepared? Are you spiritually fit enough to survive? All we need to do is look around the spiritual landscape and, and the evidence is, is immediate. There is a battle raging. Amen? It's a spiritual war. It's a battle for the family. It's a battle for your kids and mind. Mine, it's a, it's a battle for your marriage, it's a battle for your life, it's a battle for your mind, and ultimately it's a battle for your soul. The Bible is explicitly clear. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the last days, difficult times will come. Well, they're here. And they're getting worse. As Francis Schaeffer once said before he passed away, this is not an age to be a soft Christian. Good statement. This is not an age to be a soft Christian. And I wonder if too many of us may be going into this battle unprepared, stark naked spiritually without protection, we're going in soft. We're going in vulnerable. Ill-equipped to engage our spiritual adversary. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the engagement? Do you feel protected? If you only get one thing out of this talk today, I want it to be this. Engaging the adversary requires spiritual preparation and spiritual protection. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, if you would, with me. We're going to look at verses 10 to 13 today. I'm actually going to read down through verse 19, because that's the greater text than what we'll be dealing with for the next couple of weeks. But Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, follow along with me. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition 
for all the saints. Let me give you the context in which Paul writes this passage of Scripture. After the Apostle Paul spends three chapters in Ephesians outlining the incredible blessings and the status believers possess as followers of Christ, he then, right on the heels of three more chapters of some very practical encouragement, he gives us three more chapters of very practical encouragement about how Christ followers are to live in relation to the church, to the community, to the world. How we're supposed to live in relationship with our spouses and our families and with those whom we serve. Then he begins to give us some closing advice in this book of Ephesians. He gives the community at that church, that, that, that town, Ephesians, Ephesus, and to us this advice. And as he does this, he dramatically shifts gears. He takes us all to a place that many may categorize as unfamiliar territory. He moves us purposefully, I believe, from the struggle of life in the tangible world to a battle that is waged on a much, much deeper level. The spiritual one. And he begs the question with this text, are you protected? Are you protected? Paul's strong advice is simply this. Be prepared and protect yourself. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 13 as he writes it in the message. Ephesians 6, verse 13 from the message. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get. Every weapon God has issued so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. I like the way that's... Put. Be prepared, protect yourself, and we do that by taking at least four types of spiritual actions according to this text. And the first one is this. Paul's giving it to us straight. He says, start relying on spiritual power. Verse 10. Look at it again. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Start relying on your spiritual power, not your earthly, human power. Wherever and whenever there is spiritual work going on, Satan is going to oppose it. You can count on it. J. Dwight Pentecost says, quote, Satan does not release his subjects willingly nor easily. Because you have received Jesus Christ, you have antagonized him and made an adversary out of him. If you've just become a believer, you can bet that he will use every means possible to stop you from growing to maturity in Christ. He'll make you too busy to serve, too bored to read, too distracted to focus, too tired to pray, too fragmented to form new Christian relationships. Etc., etc. You can fill it all in. And if you've been a Christian for a longer period of time, he will try his best to douse the fire of your passion. The assaults will come one after another in an attempt to place discouragement after discouragement in your life. And when it happens, you need to remember an extremely important truth. And it's this You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
Amen. We're not just God's adopted sons and daughters, folks. We're not solely servants of the king, but the Bible says that we're also soldiers, doesn't it? He uses that metaphor. We're soldiers, and it's a soldier's job to fight the enemy, and we need to know from where to draw our strength. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Literally, he's just telling it to us like this. He says, here's the bottom line. You need to be empowered by the Lord himself. That's period. And you need to allow that strength to fuel every single moment of your life, every minute. And the interesting thing here is that even though this is a command, it is what is called, it's, it's written in what's called grammatically the passive voice. You can kind of get a picture of what that means. It's just a fancy way of saying that the strength that we need is something that we allow to happen to us. We don't work it up or pump it up. It's not self-induced. We allow it to happen to us. In other words, when we make ourselves available to God, depend on Him in prayer, fill our minds in on our hearts with His truth, and enlist the help of other Christians, we gain the Lord's strength. Don't we? Here's the principle. God strengthens the weak, not those who already think they're strong. Dependence is a hard thing for most of us. Very difficult. But God's strength only comes to us through our dependence on Jesus Christ and the filling of His Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Bob Benson crystallized it when he said, when life caves in, you do not need reasons. You need comfort. You do not need some answers. You need someone. And Jesus does not come to us with an explanation. He comes to us with His presence. Isn't that great? John chapter 15 Jesus said to his disciples and to us, I am the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Right? A branch can't bear fruit when it's separated from the vine, from Jesus. And neither can we. There's really only one way to survive this jungle. There is one primary source of my strength and your strength, and it's Jesus. Any other strength is impotent by comparison. If his strength is perfect and his strength must be our strength, and if we're going to be prepared and protected, we need to start allowing ourselves to be affected by that strength. Because the battle is ultimately his, isn't it? It's ultimately his. I'd like you to turn to 2 Chronicles. Hold your finger at Ephesians 6. Rewind a little bit to the Old Testament and look at 2 Chronicles chapter 14 with me for a moment. We need to adopt the attitude of Asa here in this text. Asa built fortresses and he prepared himself in human terms for a battle. But he came to find out in this text that there's always a stronger army in human terms, isn't there? There's always a stronger army, always a bigger threat. Is that right? Have you found that to be true in your life? 
Look at chapter 14 of 2 Chronicles, verse 6. Talks about Asa having removed the high places, the incense altars from all the cities of Judah in verse 5, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. It says he built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed and there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. Notice that, underline that. The land is ours because we have sought the Lord our God. That's a principle that applies today, by the way. Applies to our country, by the way. And we have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of what? A million men. A million men. And 300 chariots. And he came to Marisha. So Asa went out to meet him and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephatha at Marisha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God. Notice verse 11. Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come out against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against me. Is that what it says? What's it say? You. Notice Asa's attitude. He realizes that the battle is not his. It's not even against him. It's the Lord's and it's against the Lord ultimately. These words of Asa's prayer, just, they just ring with the familiarity of that clip we just saw of Jesus in the garden. I trust in you, Father. Strengthen me, protect me. Verse 12, so the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah and the Ethiopians fled. Notice that. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army and they carried away very much plunder. Yeah, Asa was responsible and he built fortresses and prepared himself in human terms. But when he came up against a stronger army, what was his attitude? He realized that he needed the Lord's strength. I want you to notice Paul's emphasis here on power in, verses, in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He uses three different words in that, in that one sentence to emphasize power. The NIV, I think, says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you back up a little bit, Henry used it this morning as he opened the service. Notice 
in the midst of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his, what's it say? Power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Isn't that great? Christ's power. Paul uses four synonyms for power in verse 19. Four different times he says it. Christ's power is inherent power. It's the power that resides within God himself. Christ's power is energizing power. It's operative. In other words, it works in us and can be exercised and manifested. Christ's power is effective power. It's the power that created the world. It causes mountains to shake, the Jordan to divide in the Old Testament. And it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead and causes believers to be made spiritually alive when they were dead in sin. That's power. That's the kind of power that we need to do battle with the enemy. And Christ's power is adequate power. When we rely on that kind of strength, we're adequate to withstand the sifting that Satan wants to put us through and we can fight him with confidence. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves as to think of anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. He's the source of our strength. And I love the way J.B. Phillips renders verse 10 in his translation. He says, be strong, not in yourselves, but in the Lord, in the power of his boundless strength. Pastor Jim Simbola of Brooklyn Tabernacle really puts it in perspective in one of his books, Fresh Faith, Fresh Fire, when uh, he writes, quote, when most people break down in their Christian life, they simply try harder. Is that what you do? Try harder. Try harder in your own strength, right? That's what New Year's resolutions are all about. He says, lots of luck with that. Try harder with what? He says, I've looked inside of me and stopped looking because there's nothing in there that's good or usable. On the other hand, if I turn the other way and begin looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as Hebrews says, I find everything I need. He said, when I was growing up, I thought the greatest Christian must be the person who walks around with shoulders thrown back because of tremendous inner strength and power, quoting scripture and letting everyone know he has arrived. I have since learned that the most mature believer is the one who is bent over, leaning most heavily on the Lord and admitting his total inability to do anything without Christ. And that's amazing when you see that in action. When my mentor, before he passed away, Bob Frederick was just flat on his back in bed. He could not move. He could barely talk. 
And this came true. I used to think he was so powerful because he could quote scripture and you know, pick up on it like that and give it to us, give us the advice and the wisdom and all of that stuff. Then I realized when all of that stuff was stripped and he had no physical strength whatsoever and he was totally leaning on Jesus, that's when he became strongest in my, in my eyes. The greatest Christian is not the one, Jim Simbola says, who has achieved the most, but rather the one who has received the most. God's grace, love, and mercy flow through him abundantly because he walks in total dependence. Do you want to be well prepared for the battle? Then start relying on spiritual strength, not on your own human strength. Secondly, Paul says in verse 11 here, he brings out another action that we must take. He said, put on spiritual protection. Put on spiritual protection. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Put it on, Paul says. Let me ask you, are you clothed with the right spiritual armor? Do you even know what it is? It's right there in the text if you don't know what it is. And we're going to get into the details of it next week. But are you protecting yourself with the armor that God provides or do you march into battle with a faulty or ill-fitting set of equipment? Kind of like David in the Old Testament when he was going up against Goliath and Saul said, here, use my armor. And he clothed David with his own armor and David started walking around he couldn't even walk with it. He says, I cannot go to battle with this armor because ha I haven't proved it. I haven't tested it myself. And he stripped himself of Saul's armor and he went out and got the armor that God would supply him with, which was five smooth stones in which he felled the giant. Right? Do you know what you need to put on? As Paul wrote this letter, he was under house arrest in Rome. He was guarded by a Roman soldier who likely was clothed in some sort of armor. The Holy Spirit probably sparked Paul's imagination as he was looking at this soldier in order to shape the metaphor which we have right now in Ephesians 6. And we'll get, like I said, into the details next time. Yet there is one thing that I want to target right now that may pinpoint why a lot of Christians are getting pummeled by the enemy and experiencing tremendous defeat in their lives, in their spiritual walk. How many times have you heard someone say or preach that we should make it a point to put on our armor every day before we go out to do battle? Have you heard that? Raise your hands if you've heard that before. Through prayer and by faith, we should clothe ourselves before we get out of bed in the morning with the spiritual armor of God and then head out to do battle. You've heard that, right? I've done that. I can't break the habit of doing that. Well, I'm about to teach you something totally different from that. This verse doesn't say anything of the sort. In the original language, the command here, let me give it to you, is to put on once for all time the armor of God. That's what the grammar says. The complete armor that God supplies us with. We are to always be in full military dress. The armor of God is not something to be taken off 
on occasion when we don't think we need it. It is to be put on permanently. That's what Paul says here. The armor of God is not like gear that you would put on when you go play a football game in high school. And then you take it off when the game is over. You know why? Because for the Christian, the game is never over. Not in this life. It's never over. Plato rightly said it, quote, only the dead have seen the end of war. And he was right, spiritually speaking. That's the reality, folks. Until you die, you are in a battle, a spiritual battle. Your armor is your life. It is your protection. It is your companion at all times. Do you know when the enemy loves to strike? When do you think he would love to strike? In the lull. In the lull when the sun feels really warm and everything looks clear and the soldier longs to remove his heavy armor. That's what Satan waits for. Some of the hardest lessons that I have learned in the last 28 years of being a Christian stem from this one simple principle. There is never a time when you can take your armor off. Never. There is never a time when you can let down your guard. And at the time when you expect it the least, that snake, the devil, will strike again and again. And when he strikes, he's going for your throat. He's going for your throat. Spiritually speaking, we're eyeball to eyeball with a rattler like Jay Rathman. And he doesn't blink ever. And it's an apt metaphor. Did you know that during the whole of its life, a snake never closes its eyes? Did you know that? It can't. It doesn't have eyelids. So it keeps watch 24-7, 365. It sleeps, but while it sleeps, its eyes continue to see and detect objects that move and might affect its survival. My friends, I want to tell you something this morning. Spiritually speaking, our enemy never sleeps. He never, ever sleeps. He's always looking for the in in our lives. That one chink in the armor that exposes us. Our weak spot. We talked about that last week. What's yours? There are two important things about our protective armor that we can never forget as we prepare for battle. And it comes right out of this verse 11. First of all, we must wear all of it all the time. All the armor all the time. That's what it says. Put on the full armor of God. Put it on and don't take it off. The second thing that we need to realize about this, this text is that the armor is of God and only He can provide it. You need to wear all of it all the time and recognize that it's from God. And he provides it. Only his weapons will be effective. Ours are absolutely useless. 2 Corinthians chapter three and ver uh, chapter 10 and verses 3 to 5. You can look that up. It's just a couple of books back. Paul writes in the NIV, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. So what are the weapons of our spiritual warfare? Well, Paul describes them in verses 14 to 18, 19 here in Ephesians chapter 6. And he's not talking about literal helmets and shields and swords and chest protectors. He's talking about things like a passion for spiritual truth. A holy life. A secure and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. The stability of being in community with other believers, which provides a shield of protection and accountability around you. Believing in and proclaiming a message that we are not ashamed of, nor are we afraid to die for. The gospel. And he's talking about wielding a sword so sharp that it divides into everything and anything in its path. Cutting a definitive line between what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, between life and death. And you know what that sword is? The Word of God. And driving it all is the most fail-safe communication system ever devised, which brings faster, more powerful, and exponentially more effective results than any technology of communication that we have ever seen. You know what that is? Prayer. Prayer. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. These are the effective weapons of spiritual war. These are the things which God provides by grace and to which we simply respond to in obedience. These are the resources which enable us to stand firm in the fight against the schemes of the devil. Forget any one of them and we become dangerously vulnerable to him. Albert Barnes had great insight here. He said, we are not to go around partly with what God has appointed and partly with such weapons as men use. Nor are we to put on part of the armor only, but the whole of it. A man needs all that armor if he is to fight the battles of the Lord, and if he lacks one of the weapons which God has appointed, defeat may be the consequence. Anyone read Tolkien's book, The Hobbit? The Hobbit? Well, there was no one seemingly more invincible than who? The dragon smog, right? But then that unlikely hero, Bilbo Baggins, found one small weak spot in his underbelly. And that information in the hands of a skilled marksman was all it took to seal the doom of the presumptuous dragon. Unaware of his weakness and underestimating his opponents, Smog failed to protect himself. An arrow pierced his heart and the dragon was felled. Very exciting story with a very happy ending. But when it's a Christian leader that's felled, it's not so happy. Or any Christian for that matter. It's pretty tragic. And the evil one knows only too well the weak spots of most Christian warriors. And he's not going to waste his arrows. 
He's not going to waste his arrows, bouncing them harmlessly off the strongest plates of our spiritual armor. His aim is deadly, and he's going to aim for the weak spot in you and me, the point of greatest vulnerability, and that's where he's going to attack. Achilles had his heel. Goliath had his forehead. David had lust. Peter had pride. What is your weakness? What area in your life are you leaving exposed to the enemy because you failed to let God clothe you with his spiritual armor? Maybe it's an issue of you releasing control over something. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's an inability to forgive someone or yourself for that matter. Could be anger. That might be your weak spot. A sharp tongue. A lack of trust. What is it for you? You need to identify that. You may think you may have it well hidden, but I can tell you that the enemy will identify that area and put it in his crosshairs. And he will pull the trigger when you least expect it. He will not wait. Don't fool yourself. Satan and his army, they're masters, masters at identifying weaknesses, and he knows them better than you do, and he will target them and pierce you. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we need to be prepared. How? By relying on spiritual power, by putting on spiritual protection. Why? The scripture says, so that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm. You know, the word th- schemes here is, the, is where we get our English word method from. Are you up to date on Satan's methods and his tactics? One of his methods is to get people to dismiss him out of hand, like there's no such thing as the devil. There's no such thing as Satan. This is all kind of wild to me, pastor, that you're talking about. Doesn't seem really true. You know, he's pretty much winning that battle in America. Americans are either act too intelligent to believe he exists or they're too brainless to admit that he exists. I don't know which. But the Bible's crystal clear on his existence for us who believe the Bible. He's real and he's personal. Those of you who don't acknowledge his existence are unwittingly playing into his hand. Frankly, I don't know how any of us can look at the world around us, read the newspaper every day, watch CNN or whatever news channel that you watched, that you watch, and believe that he doesn't exist. He's described in the Old Testament. Revelation 12 affirms his reality. He's written about by Paul and by Peter and James and John. And Jesus not only repeatedly spoke about him, but he spoke to him in the scriptures. And he's called by many, many names in the Bible. Anointed cherub, ruler of demons, ruler of this world, God of this world, prince of the power of the air, just to name a few. He's called the tempter, the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, the vile one, the dragon, the serpent of old. He's called Satan, which means adversary. 
no less than 52 times. And he's called the devil, which means slanderer, at least 35 times amongst others. He's real and he hates every last one of us. Jesus called him a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. And he seeks only to steal and kill and destroy. And to accomplish that, he has a complete set of methods and strategies which he and his demons employ and which no human operating in his own strength can withstand. We are no match for him except when we are completely clothed and adorned with God's protection and power. In other words, we're no match for him unless we are clothed with Christ. We're not called to engage him in the spiritual realm. That's not our realm. But to resist him in the physical one. That's what the scripture says. The weapons that we use to engage him spiritually is prayer and the word of God. But we are to resist him in this physical realm. We're to be prepared with the strength of God by utterly submitting ourselves to God, standing firm and resisting him firm in our faith, utilizing these weapons that we're going to look at next week. Folks, Satan is waging an all-out war. He disguise, his disguises are very, very clever. He hides behind things like philosophy and education and music and art and religion and you name it, and he disguises himself as an angel of light. And we laugh it off, but it's no laughing matter. I think sometimes we are so ill-prepared to meet the enemy. We're too caught up in this world, which John says lies in the power of the evil one. Now I want to speak to every person in this room right now who does not or has not personally received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are under the rule of a very, very powerful enemy under his thumb. But you don't have to be. No one has to be. And by the way, you don't even have to agree that you are. It's just a fact according to the scripture. If you place any any belief at all in what the scripture says, you have to agree that that's what it says very clearly. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. You're under his thumb without Christ. But Jesus Christ came that you might have an, an abundant eternal life. He's your only protection. So take a long, hard look around. He's involved in our lives from kindergarten to the White House. He's opposed God's will. Doesn't matter what realm we talk about. He opposes God's will, perverts God's word, hinders God's servants, and undermines God's work. And he does it through a myriad of strategies and methods. And he's got an organized hierarchy of help. And let me tell you, he's zeroing in on our kids. He always has. He's ripping the next generation apart. And my parents said that, and their parents said that, and 
my kids will say that about their kids and it will go on and on because he's smart, the enemy. He wants to devour them while they're young. Why? Why would he want to do that? He wants to get them before they're spiritually equipped. Somehow he gets in and steals the seeds of faith. And Jesus warned us about that. He lurks by the roadside and steals the seed before it can take root in the soil of their soul. Before he died in 1984, a Christian theologian, philosopher, and pastor, Francis Schaeffer, I mentioned him once already, gave this frightfully prophetic warning. He said, quote, We have left the next generation naked in the face of 20th century thought by which they are surrounded, unquote. He was right. Paul said, be prepared. Rely on spiritual power. Put on spiritual protection. Thirdly, develop a spiritual perspective. Verse 12. For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice that. The spiritual powers on every level. We fight against an invisible army. We have an unseen enemy who is extremely well organized and structured. And these forces are real and they're not even in our realm. Daniel gives us a glimpse of the real deal. If you, if you look this week at Daniel chapter 10, you read that chapter and note what's going on there. This pervasiveness of spiritual demonic activity in our day, especially amongst our teens, is no joke. It's, it's war. And I, for one, am tired of seeing the enemy steal sheep. Aren't you? Let's get real, shall we? We live in a country where Satanism is a recognized and protected religion. It is. It's protected by the Constitution. We need to get some spiritual perspective on this struggle and listen to Paul's challenge. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, he says. So, fourthly, assume a spiritual posture. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Let's wind this up here. Ask yourself the serious question. Am I relying on the spiritual power of God or on myself? Are you clothed with the spiritual protection of God's armor? Do you have a spiritual perspective of this war which we're engaged in? And then, what is your posture in it? What's your posture? Are you standing firm in your faith for Christ? Or are you getting a little bit of tired, a little bit tired of fighting the battle? Be alert. Get strong. Stand firm. And believe that God can recover what the enemy has stolen. Because he can. He can. And he will. Your enemy's a thief. He's a murderer, a deceiver, a perverter of all that is good and a destroyer of everything God wants to do in and through every single one of you. 
We're either going to sit on the sidelines and let him continue to destroy our marriages and our ministries and stand by while he breaks in and he steals our, our children whom we have dedicated to God. And at the bottom of all of this is a subtle reality that what he's really after, what he's really trying to steal is your faith. He wants to replace it with something. Fear. He wants to replace your faith with fear. And fear is the exact opposite of faith. Faith declares, my God is in control. Fear reveals that we are unsure that there is any control. And if that's where you are, you cannot stand firm. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. I beg of you, clothe yourself with Christ and you'll not give in to the attacks of the evil one. There's an old story that I read that's told about a non-believer who died after willing his farm to the devil. This gave the court cause for some head scratching. What are we going to do with this place? But after several months of deliberation, the court handed down the following decision, quote, it is decided that the best way to carry out the wish of the deceased is to allow the farm to grow weeds, the soil to erode, and the house and the barn to rot. In our opinion, the best way to leave something to the devil is to do nothing, unquote. And that's where the truth lies with us spiritually. Few of us would ever admit to such irresponsibility but I'll tell you something, many will procrastinate and postpone the greatest decision of their life and end up having willed their soul to the devil. We don't want that. You don't want to do that. And so I pray that's not you today. I pray that Christ will clothe you. He's given himself for you, for the sake of you. And in so doing, disarmed the rulers and authorities, the scripture says. So receive him today. Put your faith in him. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts for this communion table, which is the visible symbol of the triumph that Christ has over the devil. At the cross, Satan was ultimately defeated. And through the resurrection... It was proven that he was defeated. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this table, we recognize what a great sacrifice it was for you to give us the opportunity for salvation. That we might be prepared and protected against the schemes of the evil one. Lord, I pray that if there's a person here sitting in this room today, anyone that has never placed their trust and faith in Christ, that they would simply reach out to you, Lord, to give their hearts to him by simply praying and asking for you to grant salvation and forgiveness of sins. And as we partake of this table, let us rejoice in the wonderful symbol that it is of the salvation that we have received through Christ. Prepare our hearts now and our minds for Jesus' sake.
and because of who he is. Amen.